For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, go behind the mask with some artistic and historic perspective on what face coverings have meant across time in this region. Gary Paul Nabhan asks that we consider the future of sacred places that are being threatened by border wall construction. Remembering a distinctive voice in comic books, Denny O'Neill, who wrote stories where the greatest threats weren't supervillains or monsters, but injustice, inequality, and prejudice. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Do you wear a mask in public? The pandemic has shifted many Americans' opinion on face covering. Some now see masks as a symbol of care and respect for their fellow citizens. Others feel differently. Artists have long explored the deeper meaning of masks, and their symbolic significance is a part of cultures all over the world. Next, Elisa Ivanitskaya takes a closer look into the meaning of masks in this region. If you visit the yaki ceremonies, which are under normal circumstances open to the public, you'll see on the one side of the Ramada, and that's our old ancient church, the two violinists and the harp player. The flute and drum player is one person. And you'll see between two and four or five Pascola dancers. And the Pascola dancers dance one at a time, taking turns. As a child, Santiago Benton Camacho enjoyed coming to the ceremonies with his father. I just felt in my heart that's what I wanted to do. I did need to serve as a model, staying up all night, attending the pascolas, whatever they needed. After a year of the service, he was allowed to perform his first dance, and he got his first mask. The pascola dancers use masks as a way to connect with the spiritual world. I felt so much love in my heart. I felt the presence of my ancestors, and they were helping me because it's not easy dancing all night. You get tired. <laughs> but uh, when I dance, it's just so filled with joy. The dance is our way of praying. When we put the mask on, when we dance to the flute, we're able to connect or transform and have that connection to the wilderness world. A lot of love bursting through my heart when I'm down. My first mask, I still have that mask, and it's black, human-shaped form with the nose and the two eyes, smiling mouth with the borders having triangles or rays representing the sun. And most masks on the forehead have the cross or sun symbol. We've had the sun symbol before the Spaniards arrived. And then the beard is a horse tail hair or sometimes the goat tail hair that is hanging from the eyebrows. So it kind of covers the mask and it hangs down from the chin 
On the cheeks, there is an animal like a scorpion or a snake, or it could be a lizard because all of those, the animals are saints to us. They're our brothers. We have highly respect and, and recognize our connection and unity and um, love for what the wilderness world has always provided for us for life. According to Diane Dittemore, Associate Curator of Ethnology at the Arizona State Museum, the Pascola masks of Mayo and Yaqui culture were later influenced by Christianity. What we see is syncretism, indigenous practices with an overlay of Christianity and in ways that are expressed differently, but some Yaquis would look at that and say, well, this, the, the Pascola, is the son of the devil. And he is very sad because he is estranged from his father, but he's also trying to help the people to protect them from the devil. This concept of a devil being an idea that came in with Christianity as it was seen and interpreted, you know, hundreds of years ago when the Spanish first came. Mask symbolism evolves over time, with some patterns capturing not only beliefs, but also commemorating historical events. Luis David Valenzuela, a Yaqui woodcarver, says that color too has changed over time, as the first Pascola masks were not painted. First Pascola mask was the goat mask, represents the old man of the fiesta. But they didn't paint the first ones, they just did natural color and did the symbolism, like the cross on our forehead that represents the four directions of earth, but also represents the father's son. And the triangles under the eyes represents the tears of the battle between the Yaqui and Mexican Revolution. The red represents the blood shed between the Yaquis and the Mexicans and the battles they had. So they went on, they started to burn the Pascual defense. They would make a fire and throw the mass in there and then with a stick they would move it around so they could get that two-tone part. By the time it went on, we started to paint them. We have the three traditional colors, the black, the red, and the white. Valenzuela, who has been carving Pascola masks for over 35 years, creates masks both for traditional dancers and collectors. We have the ones that educate people so they can understand more about the symbolism, more about the Yaqui culture and who we are and get the respect we deserve. And the other Pascola masks that they use during the uh, Pascal, the fiestas, uh, have a cross that's burning the inside of the mask. And those are only used by the Pascola dancers and nobody else should be touching that Pascola mask. When I do Pascola masks for dancers, I give it to them as a gift out of respect for them to get the blessing for my life. And they sit down with me and we do the process of the Mass together. Because there's prayers that go into the Mass before they use it for the ceremony. And there's uh, stories that I gotta tell them and they have to respect the Mass. It's just not a Mass, it's a traditional Mass that's gonna use, be used for traditional purpose. So they gotta honor that Mass like it's part of them. Yaki and Maya ceremonies are open to the public, and masks are a popular collector's item. However, for some indigenous communities, a mask has a status of sacred object, and they are not to be shared with outsiders. Here is Diane Ditamo from the Arizona State Museum. For the indigenous communities here, 
when you think of Apaches, Hopis, Navajo, or Diné, the masks are part of an esoteric ritual part of culture, which is not something to share with the outside world. And so there's been some serious international incidents over the masks that aren't supposed to be sold. Several years ago in Paris, there was a major art auction where the Hopi tribe and the Apache tribe tried desperately to convince the auction house to not sell them because for for Hopis, these are not things that you buy and sell. And the auction house basically said that U.S. law doesn't extend to what they're doing and they felt they had a right to sell them. The incident from 2013 ended with an Arizona-based nonprofit buying the masks from auction and returning the sacred objects to the tribes. Here at the museum, we've had masks from many of these cultures. They've been returned. Uh, we have very respectful relationships with the communities. We're allowing the communities themselves to decide what is appropriate to share and what is not. And so these are masks that have uh, a role in ceremony and uh, not necessarily something that they're interested in sharing details of. Masks can also create a feeling of connection with dead loved ones. Every year, more than 100,000 Tucsonans participate in the All Souls procession a public commemoration ceremony. Mask making is an essential part of it, says Paul Weir, a technical director and a board founder for the All Souls procession. It might be their first time they ever make a work of art is to make a mask of their dead mother or their dead father for the All Souls procession. And then they realize they have a knack for it. They have a love for creating and playing with clay or playing with paper mache or whatever the medium is that they choose. For years, the All Souls procession has held workshops to teach Tucsonans mask making in different styles, paper mache, clay, and score and fold masks. For Randy Young, a sculptor, wildlife conservationist, and a longtime volunteer for the All Souls procession, masking goes beyond a human art form. Animals often practice mimicry too. One of the things that I find really interesting working as I do with people and nature is mimicry in nature, where you have owls and ocelots and, and a lot of other creatures that have eyes on the back of their head painted into their fur in order to make it look like they are looking the other direction to protect themselves. You have insects that look like the flowers that they hang out on in order to catch other insects. You have flowers that look like insects in order to attract a, another insect to pollinate it that's actually looking to mate. You've got plants that look like dead animal flesh in order to attract flies that are going to then pollinate that plant while laying their eggs. And so to me, masks go back that far. Masks both hide one reality and expose another reality while telling a story. Both Weir and Young also create life casts, which they say can be a powerful tool for self-exploration. When you pull someone's life cast out for the first time and they see themselves without being flipped in a mirror, in their face in 3D, they often can't find themselves in a pile of faces. 
they're looking right at themselves, but they don't see it because they've never seen themselves turned around the other way and in 3D. And with the lack of tone. Correct. Yeah, because that takes away a lot of the individuality, you know, your rednesses, your palenesses, your darknesses. You see every pore, every wrinkle. So when I do this for people, when we make a mask, it's often a very powerful experience just to pull it out of the mold. This year, the All Souls procession will be held online. But even without the public ceremony, people can connect with each other through creating art together. We're so modern these days, right? I think what's so important about things like the All Souls and mask making and creating is that these are things that we used to do a lot together. Masks are part of our humanity, often based on your face itself. The mask is definitely uh, a very much a part of who we are as individuals on the planet, not just humans. I think people automatically assume it to be a human trait and evolution has worked with it much before humans grab the hand of it. So it's more powerful than that is. For Arizona Spotlight, I am Alisa Ivanitskaya. Pascola Dancer's Masks from Jim Griffith's collection are a part of the online exhibition at the Arizona State Museum. They'll also be on display after the museum reopens until the end of January. To learn more and see photographs, visit azpm.org. Most public discussion of the Trump administration's efforts to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border focus on immigration and politics. Gary Paul Nabhan is a research scientist with the University of Arizona's Southwest Center. He is also an ecumenical Franciscan brother. He asks us to consider that a border wall would desecrate many sacred places. It would sever the connection that indigenous people have with their traditional lands, infringing on their right of religious freedom as promised by the First Amendment. Gary Paul Nabhan is an independent contributor to this show, and his opinions do not represent those of Arizona public media. Although this year's Native Religious Freedom Day didn't muster much fanfare, discussion of religious liberties has soared since the pandemic hit us five months ago. Dozens of feature stories debate whether the spiritual observances of Americans are essential activities. If treated as such, they should not be disrupted by executive orders on national emergencies, for that restricts all of our constitutionally guaranteed religious freedoms. Public outcry over government intrusions on religious liberties once seem restricted to evangelical Christian groups. But recently, other faiths have become just as vocal on this issue. They are wary of executive orders that would limit their access to places of worship. They wish to make their own choice about when, where, and how many of their congregation members should gather together. They claim they will heed all safety precautions while doing so. But at this very moment, there is another kind of religious liberty disruption happening within our state and nation. Border wall construction by the Army Corps of Engineers is desecrating historic places of worship long used by Native Americans and other like populations. These faithful communities have been worshiping at such sacred sites well before border wall construction began. Arizona's Quito Baquito Oasis is not the only sacred site being imperiled by wall construction. There's La Lomita Chapel in Texas. There's a border church in Friendship State Park in California. Recent border wall construction has violated the religious liberties of the indigenous communities 
whom we may call America's first people. More than a dozen cemeteries and chapels have been impacted along the border. Contractors for the Army Corps have desecrated sacred plants, shrines, springs, burial, and ceremonial grounds of at least six tribes. The Army Corps has apparently forgotten that the Secretary of Defense signed a memorandum of understanding called Native American Sacred Sites and the Federal Government. In 2012, federal agencies pledged to work with the tribes to assure protection of sacred sites along the border through what they call ongoing consultation. As their memorandum of understanding explained, for Native American nations, many spiritual practices are linked to a very specific geographical location. If that sacred site no longer existed or was inaccessible to Native people, those traditions would no longer survive. Despite that pledge from our federal agencies to honor such spiritual considerations, by February 2020, federal agencies had suspended their consultations with the Tohono Nation with regard to sacred sites at the border. The Army Corps then bulldozed through two Native burial sites in Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. The Army Corps of Engineers had been cautioned to avoid them by tribal officials, but the Department of Defense had broken its pledge. Many faiths have been able to shift their places or times of worship during the COVID emergency. Native American groups, however, are committed to keeping up their seasonal cycles of prayers and blessings at particular sacred sites, and they have no such option to switch those out. As the Tahunau are taught, we must harvest the saguaro cactus fruit, make ceremonial wine with it, and sing our songs and do our dances, or else the rains won't come to grow our crops that feed our people. Understanding this, intertribal and interfaith organizations now urge the Senate and Homeland Security itself to hold new field hearings along the border with regard to these issues. We need people of all faiths to come together with responsible federal agencies to halt and even reverse border wall construction near sacred sites. The First Amendment religious freedoms of indigenous communities have been violated in ways that will persist far longer than just a two-month church closure. The pandemic has reminded us what a true national emergency is, and a hyped-up emergency at the border should not override the Constitution. All peoples with spiritual conviction stand to lose when even one of America's diverse cultures loses its own religious liberties. This is Gary Paul Nabhan, and I wish to thank my collaborators, Verlin Jose, governor of the traditional autumn leaders, and Octaviana Trujillo, former chairwoman of the New Pascua Yaqui tribe of Arizona, for working with me on this issue. Gary Paul Nabhan is a world-renowned agricultural ecologist and ethnobotanist, He's written about restoring land to bring people together and feed them in healthy and sustainable ways in Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Lands and Communities. His most recent book is Mesquite, an Arboreal Love Affair.
man named Dennis J. O'Neill died this week. He was 81 years old. I never met him, but I'd like to think I got to know him. Hearing of his passing made me think about his influence on me and on a generation, and why it seems important today. Denny O'Neill wrote comic books, really good ones, mostly at DC Comics, where he was known for a series of two-fisted Batman adventures in the 1970s that revitalized the character, leaving the campy 60s version behind and creating the basis for the modern Dark Knight. That was important, but that's not why I'm talking about Denny O'Neill today. Because the reason his work stood out wasn't who he wrote about, but what. Environmentalism, feminism, racism, poverty, demagoguery, inequality, corruption, addiction. These were the topics that drove his stories, the things that he was clearly thinking about, and in turn, what he impelled his characters and his readers to think about. There are far too many examples to cite. Batman matching wits with his noblest foe, Raish al Ghul, a man who is essentially immortal and wages a war against corporations and those who exploit the Earth. The space cop Green Lantern being asked by an elderly black man why he spent so much time fighting for American values on other planets when neighborhoods in his own home city were unsafe and unjust. Green Lantern had no answer, but under Denny O'Neill's pen, he went on a journey to try to understand. O'Neill also created a personality for the previously bland Green Arrow, making him a staunch leftist and anti-fascist. He was always ready to debate social issues with more hawkish heroes, including, well, Hawkman. It helped that Arrow was also a billionaire, willing to put his money where his mouth was and trying to make a better world. Over at Marvel Comics, O'Neill crafted a long storyline that saw Iron Man, Tony Stark, succumb to alcoholism. As part of his recovery, he was replaced as Iron Man in the Avengers by his best friend, James Rhodes. It was a milestone in the depiction of addiction in comics, and of an African-American hero, not sidekick. Amazing, really, that all that and so much more was always waiting for my young mind and what my grandmother would never fail to call funny books. As Denny O'Neill went through the years that followed assassinations, the Vietnam War, Kent State, and Watergate, he was enacting change in the industry he worked for. Not through polemics or straw man arguments, but by writing stories that challenged the readers, many of them far younger than he, to ask important questions about what they believed and why they believed it. But O'Neill wasn't perfect, and from one of his biggest stumbles came a lesson that I have long embraced. To combat poor sales in the 1970s, DC Comics decided to revamp Wonder Woman and remove the elements of fantasy and magic from her stories. She renounced her Amazon sisterhood, became mortal without powers, and traded her colorful costume for a white pantsuit. The idea was to take the character to the streets and have her face more real-world threats. It sounded like writer Denny O'Neill would be in his element with this new status quo. But the backlash from fans and critics was swift, pointing out that depowering an icon like Wonder Woman, in the process giving her much self-doubt and making her more dependent on male characters than ever before, that was a serious mistake. Luckily, that era of Wonder Woman's career was short-lived. But Denny O'Neill spent a long time making up for it. He said, 
At the time, I thought I was serving the cause of feminism by making this woman self-made, and then I immediately undercut that. He realized that becoming a feminist, something he aspired to, is a long road, with many lessons to be learned on the way. It is his reflection on that experience that I think about often, how easy it can be to be insensitive, even in instances when one is trying to help, and how quickly one can assume too much about how another person might feel, or worse yet, should feel. Being an ally is an important thing, but it brings with it the responsibility to represent on behalf of an entire community. And it demands that one must continue to listen to what is being said, even after someone else might think they've gotten the point. So, for making me consider the ramifications of Rachel Ghoul's eco-terrorism, asking me to question why Green Lantern didn't use his power to protect victims of racism, and helping me realize that Wonder Woman might be about a whole lot more than just bullets and bracelets, I really owe Denny O'Neill a lot. This was a guy who once said he couldn't imagine a more satisfying job than writing comic books. This was long before there were perks like blockbuster movie deals and million-dollar merchandise sales. O'Neill wrote great stories because of great ideas and his hope that the fight for truth and justice wouldn't end at the edge of the comic book page. Dennis O'Neill gave me very much in return for the lion's share of my allowance money and all that valuable time that I frittered away reading funny books. I just wanted to tell him thank you. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Mark McLemore. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.